to the doctor for a checkup. We expect them to check our vital signs. They'll listen to our heartbeat, check if our lungs are clear, and take our blood pressure. But if you're a menstruating adult, when was the last time you were asked about your period? Hello, friends. My name is Desiree Nielsen, and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. Today's guest believes that your menstrual cycle is, in fact, a fifth vital sign. If you are missing a period, it's painful, or its frequency is all over the place, your body is communicating that something is wrong and it should be investigated. Because one of the things that could be wrong is polycystic ovarian syndrome, an endocrine disorder that actually has nothing to do with cysts, but everything to do with hormone balance, namely the interplay between reproductive hormones like estrogen and testosterone with insulin and other metabolic hormones. Did you know, for example, that PCOS, as it's called, is a close cousin of type 2 diabetes? Or that as many as 75% of women with PCOS may never get diagnosed? Those are just a few of the facts I learned over the course of my conversation with Dr. Nitu Bajekal, a UK OBGYN and co-author of the book, Living PCOS Free, with her daughter, nutritionist Rohini Bajekal. If you are the proud owner of a pair of ovaries, you're going to want to listen to this podcast. So let's dive in. Dr. Nitu, I'm so excited to speak with you on the All Sorts podcast because your book, Living Picos Free, I recommend it to anyone who asks me about hormonal health and polycystic ovarian syndrome in particular. And so I'm really excited to share your wisdom with our audience because I think right now in particular, there is a huge trend around eating for hormonal health. And as a dietitian, I see so much misinformation being shared online. And as so many of us may be receiving these diagnoses, I'm really excited that we have an evidence-based and plant-based professional (laughs) to really just give people the lay of the land. And so I feel like we should start right off the top with what is PICOS for people who maybe aren't quite sure. Fabulous. Thank you, Desiree, for uh, inviting me onto the All Sorts podcast. I am very excited to talk about a condition that is so poorly recognized, is so stigmatized, and just doesn't have the information out there for people to empower themselves. And so that was the reason why my daughter and I chose to write this as our first book, because really, I just felt a lot of disservice being done with misinformation, like you say, and understanding that, you know, what the science and what the evidence says, and then using it uh, to the best of one's ability to take it forward to, you know, heal themselves or help themselves in any which way. I also want to say that throughout, uh, when I do mention the word woman, I am very particular that I want to address anybody who's assigned female at birth. I also want to stress uh, that there is no medication shaming. I am a doctor uh, with over 35 years of clinical experience, uh, OBGYN with 35 years of clinical experience. And it really saddens me to see the two sides of the coin as if there is no in between. So, you know, there is a lot of medication shaming in the online community. And on the other side, the medical community understands little about lifestyle and the benefits of lifestyle for hormonal health and for all health, including the benefits of nutrition. And so I really wanted to be that voice that actually brought both of them together. So at the end of the day, our interest, you as a dietitian, me as an OBGYN and lifestyle medicine physician, want to put the patient or the person in the center rather than having this war that, you know, only natural is good and, and all medicines are bad or all medicines are amazing and lifestyle has little to play. So I hope that that message came out loud and clear in the book. And I hope that we can talk about the various aspects of polycystic ovary syndrome. 
So coming to your question, what is polycystic ovary syndrome? It is the most common endocrine disorder. And when we mean endocrine, it is a hormonal disorder which affects women in the reproductive age group. Uh, So reproductive age group is any time from the time you start your periods until you stop your periods. Although the repercussions of uh, PCOS uh, is felt, uh, you know, in adolescent years, in early years, as well as well into the menopause. So it's the most common endocrine disorder that affects women of reproductive age group. But Think of it as a close cousin of type 2 diabetes. That is the best way of understanding it because the etiopathology is, you know, there is a big group of uh, women who actually have a trigger of insulin resistance, which is a similar issue in type 2 diabetes. But the interesting thing that people don't understand is PCOS or PCOS is a misnomer. There are no cysts in the ovaries. These are tiny, immature uh, follicles that never grow to maturity. Every month, a single egg is selected by nature because of the way the hormones, hormones are chemical messengers that are produced by our brain, for example, uh, and they work their magic in distant organs. So, for example, you have hormones called gonadotrophin releasing hormones from a little gland called the hypothalamus, which is sort of a master controller in the brain that then works on the pituitary gland, which releases follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormones. These are big words, but basically they're stimulating an egg in the ovary every month for in the hope of a pregnancy. And when the pregnancy doesn't occur, roughly two weeks after the release of that egg, the lining gets shed and a period occurs. So what basically happens is hormones are these chemical messengers that are secreted into the bloodstream and work their effects on the thyroid gland, on the pancreas, on the ovaries. And so really what happens is it's not a a disorder of the ovaries. There's no disease. Your ovaries do not have uh, big cysts or, you know, anything wrong with them. What they have is they're responding. The function of the ovaries are affected because of the hormonal issues that are being released from the brain. And so there's a mismatch of the signals that are coming through with the negative and positive feedback. So it's so important to understand that it is a hormonal condition, but it doesn't, there's nothing wrong with your ovaries. And so it has a lot of psychological effects, metabolic effects, reproductive effects. And so it is so important that it should be a public health issue. Uh, And, you know, I think about $8 billion was used in uh, the US for healthcare for those having polycystic ovary syndrome complications. So whether it's gestational diabetes or type 2 diabetes, but it's still not recognized. Three quarters of women will never get a diagnosis of PCOS. And although anywhere between one in 10 to one in four women actually have the condition. And the reason is because the uh, symptoms are disparate. And often what happens is the health professional is not joining the dots, absolutely failing to join the dots because the uh, The person who's right in the center is having different symptoms, but we as healthcare professionals should be saying, okay, so what else is happening with your periods or what is happening with your acne? And and we'll come to those. But nobody's asking those questions. Everybody's working in their own little bubble. And so as a result, the uh, person who's got the condition is, is no, has no idea that they there is help available, that they have a diagnosis. And unless you have that diagnosis, how can you help yourself and how can you be helped? And, you know, I think it speaks so much to conditions that are considered to affect. And in your book, I learned that it's not just women and those assigned female at birth, but conditions that affect women primarily are so often overlooked or dismissed when a woman comes into her health professional. And so, you know, in order to empower us to better communicate with our physicians, like what are the signs and symptoms that we are looking for that if these pop up, this might be this clue, you know what, I need to talk to my doc and I need to tell them exactly what's going on. And so even before we talk about signs and symptoms, it's so important to know what is to be expected for the vast majority of people. So you expect to have your periods uh, starting, you know, before the age of about 15 or so. So anywhere from the ages of 8 to 15 is a normal time when you would have menarche, the first period and puberty. And then 
the last period is usually around the age of 51, ranging between 45 and 55. So it's important to know the range of what is the reproductive age group. The second thing is to understand that it is not normal to miss periods. It is not normal to have frequent periods. The normal cycle should be between 24 and 35 days which means that the menstrual cycle and every person who is menstruating has to keep a track of their record of their cycles, unless you're on hormonal pills or the coil where you don't, you don't need to have periods. That's a different matter. But if you are having periods then uh, or you're not on these medications, then you should know your cycle. And you must track it from the day you start having it till the day you stop because that's so important because it tells us it's a vital sign. It tells us whether you have conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome or eating disorders or hypothalamic amenorrhea, so many conditions. And it is an important question for health professionals to ask because, you know, if you've broken your bone and you're not having your periods, you may be somebody who's actually having an eating disorder that has resulted in this. So it's so important to understand that. So if you are somebody who has periods, then your period should be, say, 24 days, 25, 26, 27, 28, that sort of range. Uh, it should not be switching from 24 days to 35 days, but the range is between 24 and 35 days. And most women will sit two or three, four days uh, around the cycle. So 24, 25, 26, 27, or 31, 32, 33, 34, that sort of cycle. If you're somebody who's having periods every 40 days and then 35 days and then 60 days, that is a red flag. Similarly, if your periods are coming, uh, you know, every 21 days, 20 days, 14 days, big red flag. If you're bleeding after intercourse, if you're bleeding in between your periods, if you're having pain during your periods, all red flags, not for polycystic ovaries, but that those are important to understand that these are not to be ignored. Heavy periods, painful periods, doesn't matter if your mother had it, doesn't matter if your grandmother had it. This is not normal. And your doctor doesn't decide whether your periods are heavy or not. But if you are finding that your periods are lasting more than seven days, you're passing clots, you're soaking through, you're needing double protection. If your periods are affecting, uh, the pain is affecting the quality of your life, you're not able to go to school or to work, that is not normal. You've got to look for conditions like endometriosis and fibroids and pelvic inflammation. So once you know what is normal, the other important things to also know is what are the different parts of your body. There was a survey in, in London where they found that one in two women couldn't identify the neck of the womb or the cervix. They, one in four did not know where their vagina was. One in 10 didn't know where their uterus was. This is not the fault of the of the person. The fault lies in the health authorities and the government and the, not the parents. It's not the duty of the parents to teach all this because they may not be in a position. They may not know themselves. So it's really we're failing the the common person who actually needs to be educated about this. But if you are listening to this, then I would like you to, you know, refer to the book or refer to bona fide sources so you can actually understand what is the vulva, what is the vagina, what is the uterus, what are the ovaries? Because these things are important because if you don't know the different parts, how are you going to know whether you have polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis or you're having issues with getting pregnant, any of these things. And polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, the one of the it's the commonest cause for uh, female infertility because of the failure to release eggs. So that brings us uh, to the signs and symptoms of polycystic ovary syndrome. So uh, there are some very common or well-known symptoms, and then there are others that are not so well-known. And then based on those symptoms and signs, we use those to uh, basically say, how do we, there are certain criteria that have to be fulfilled before we diagnose medically that somebody's got polycystic ovary syndrome. And there's no difference between polycystic ovary disease, PCOD or PCOS, because I know a lot of people in India and other uh, countries call it PCOD. It's not a disease. We don't know the definite cause. That's why it's a syndrome, because there are multiple reasons why somebody may have uh, PCOS. And so the signs that uh, or symptoms that people may notice, one of the most common ones is uh, irregular periods or missed periods or delayed periods. Remember that 24 to 35 days, if it's falling outside that and doing all kinds of things, it's really important. Even when you've just started your periods, if you, the first year you may have a little bit of hit and miss, but any periods that don't come for more than three months is again a red flag. So that should be uh, investigated. So uh, that is because of the failure to release an egg every month. 
Okay, you're already born with the number of eggs and every month an egg is supposed to be released. Now, if that is not happening, then it, you are known to have what is called an ovulation, failure to release the egg. And that results in irregular periods or missed periods or delayed periods, 35 days, 37 days, 40 days, that kind of cycle. Okay, so that is the one of the hallmarks of uh, PCOS. Not everybody will have it, but that is a, a, a common uh, symptom. The second one is signs of androgen excess. So the first one is because of the failure to release an egg or anovulation. The second group of symptoms is because of signs of androgen excess. Now, it's important to know all of us have heard of testosterone. We think only men have testosterone. No. Women have, in the reproductive age groups so of women who are in uh, between the ages of uh, 14 and 50, uh, approximately, I'm just giving you an idea, have four times more testosterone than estrogen. So you can imagine that there is such a misnomer that, you know, testosterone is a male hormone, but testosterone is an androgen, just like DHEA and androstene Dion. There are different androgens and they are very important for bone growth and muscle growth and mood and things like that but when there are there is androgen excess and the commonest androgen as i said is testosterone women may notice acne especially after the age of 25 that persists or even in the teenage years cystic nodular acne on the chin uh, on the chest on the back like back knee as well as excess hair growth that they don't want in places for example on the chin on the the chest on the back on the inner sides of the thighs these things are important so and they also may notice scalp hair thinning female pattern hair loss uh, on the scalp so that's again important to understand so these are all signs of androgen excess and then there are other symptoms that people may not really be aware of which are not uh, necessary for diagnosing PCOS but anxiety depression OCD these are all mental health symptoms suicidal thoughts all these things can be part and parcel of the condition sleep prop disturbances so insomnia or snoring or sleep apnea which can be quite dangerous when your sleep stops and starts that those are associated with polycystic ovary syndrome also you can have other symptoms uh, which uh, would be things like you know excess weight gain or a darkening of the skin which are signs of insulin resistance or acanthosis nigricans which are thickened velvety patches on the back of your neck or in your uh, over your elbows and things like that uh, so it's again important to know that there's a wide variety infertility or difficulty in conceiving most women will go on to conceive with help of with or without help but it's important to know is the commonest cause of anovulatory infertility so you have this whole range of symptoms there are many more that i discussed in the book. Uh, but to actually diagnose the condition, you need to have two out of three if you're an adult, which means above the age of 18, you need to have either signs of anovulation, that means you're either having irregular or missed periods, or along with, say, signs of androgen excess, so you have missed periods and acne, that itself is generally good enough to say you most likely have polycystic ovary syndrome, but PCOS or PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means I have to make sure that somebody doesn't have other conditions that can cause similar symptoms, which are more serious in the sense that, you know, uh, ovarian tumors that produce hormones or adrenal gland tumors, which are little organs that are uh, sitting on top of our kidneys uh, and so you uh, or congenital non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia these are all conditions that can also mimic PCOS you know hypothalamic amenorrhea you may stop your periods and you think I've got PCOS but actually you've got you know because of over exercising or under eating or eating disorders they can also be an issue now there's another symptom of P P PCOS that I must mention is binge eating disorders that's very common and because people often live in larger bodies what can happen is your doctor may turn around quite and say oh you need to lose weight without actually realizing that can be very triggering or get on the weighing scale uh, and so it's really important that you understand that while, you know, if a health professional is listening, that, you know, weight loss should not be a goal. It should be weight loss helps with a lot of symptoms of managing P PCOS. But I would always encourage people to be very sensitive around this topic and so that you don't drive the person away from your from your office. Instead, what you do is look at health goals. So, you know, 
what why do you want to lose weight you know so you want i want to lose weight because i have a health goal of wanting to be more fit i want to run a marathon i want to have children i want to have less acne it doesn't matter what a goal you choose choose something that is not a weight loss goal because that tends to be more sustainable in the long term future so for the criteria you need to have either signs of anovulation which is missed periods or along with signs of androgen excess or lab evidence that means blood tests that we do a particular blood test for you know checking your testosterone levels the protein that is released by the liver called sex hormone binding globulin that can be quite low in a uh, pcos and you can actually bump it up through plant based diets as well as through the pill and when you have low levels of shbg or this protein that binds the testosterone what happens is there's more free testosterone running around to create more trouble such as acne and excess hair growth so we do certain blood tests and again i've discussed all the different blood tests that we do thyroid function and insulin resistance tests but those are not diagnostic for pcos it's really these particular tests where we check testosterone levels and free androgen index and things like that so you, one may have irregular periods and acne or excess hair growth and that may be enough to give you a diagnosis of pcos or one may have uh, signs of androgen excess either through blood tests and an ultrasound scan that shows uh, these little immature egg follicles sort of arranged in a, in a pearl necklace fashion just under the surface and they have to be you know anywhere between 2 and 9 mm very tiny often uh, you know as many as 20 in number with these new high resolution ultrasound scans often we would recommend an internal scan or transvaginal scan but if you've never had sex or you don't want to have a uh, internal scan you are allowed to say that uh, and especially if you've never had sex nobody should be putting in anything inside the vagina so uh, no health professional should be doing that so if you have two out of these three criteria of irregular periods of androgen excess either with blood tests or clinical symptoms of acne and excess hair growth and hair loss or you have the ultrasound diagnosis of polycystic ovaries or an enlarged ovaries and a particular criteria what is known as polycystic ovarian morphology then you fulfill the criteria some women will have all three they will have Uh, irregular periods they will have acne or excess hair growth their blood results will also show signs and their ultrasound will be also positive so there are many people talk about different phenotypes the it's more for research but it's just important to know that you can have two out of the three or all three but for a teenager to be diagnosed with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome you have you don't use ultrasound because ultrasound uh, multicystic ovaries can look very similar to polycystic ovaries and multicystic ovaries are common in teenagers They just your ovaries are trying to get the hang of everything so you need to have your signs of androgen excess either on blood tests or clinical and the period issues so those two are needed for a teenager for adults it can be two out of these three that we talked about and they're known as the rotterdam criteria and it's important that we use that but they're not all encompassing you know because you have all as i said the binge eating disorders all these other symptoms that can link in and that is why i was saying that there is so much first of all there's stigma because you know nobody wants to have a painful nodular acne you don't feel good in about yourself often you can have you can be slim as well you don't always have to carry excess weight two out of 10 women are uh, of a healthy body weight and they may have local androgen sensitivity that means even though all their blood tests and everything is normal they have acne because or excess hair growth because the androgen levels in the gland are actually higher than they are meant to be so it's very very frustrating for these young women and so for for anybody but it's important to understand that what happens is uh, a person who's having this acne may go to see a dermatologist okay somebody with excess hair may go to see uh, a person who's a expert in laser therapy somebody who's carrying excess weight may come to see a dietitian like you somebody who's having mental health issues anxiety depression may see a therapist somebody who's having suicidal thoughts or uh, binge eating disorders may go to see a psychiatrist somebody who's having scalp hair loss may go to see a trichologist uh, somebody who's having insulin resistance may go to see a endocrinologist so can you see that there are so many different health professionals if they're not actually thinking about the whole condition they're going to keep treating these things in isolation give you a raw accutane for your acne when you should be dealing with lifestyle and and you know hormonal uh, conditions 
it's so, so important that everybody should be looking at all these symptoms. And that is why I want your listeners to empower themselves that if your doctor and if your healthcare professional and if your beauty therapist is not thinking about it, you need to be thinking about it. And don't take no for an answer. Yes, it is possible that you don't have the condition. You have something else. You may have hypothalamic amenorrhea. You may have a, a, a big cyst on your ovary that needs to come out. That's a different matter. You still need to see a healthcare professional. So don't let anybody ever tell you irregular periods is part of life. That's fine. Painful periods are part of life. You don't get painful periods with polycystic ovary syndrome because those cysts are not painful. So if you are having pain during your periods, it's another red flag that you may have conditions that are associated like endometriosis and other conditions like infections and things like that. So I hope that I've been able to sort of, it's a very complex topic. It's got a big genetic overlay. So usually there will maybe a father or a brother with, uh, you know, frontal uh, loss of hair with, uh, you know, a metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, or there may be a sister or a mother with uh, a polycystic ovary syndrome. And half the women with polycystic ovary syndrome who are living in bigger bodies will become type 2 diabetic by the age of 40. So, you know, it's so important that we understand the genetic background and the epigenetics. We think that this may actually start when you're in your womb, when your mother's diet and environment is affected. So it's so complex, but I don't want people to go away thinking genetics is your destiny. There's a lot we can do and the international guidelines confirm that there's a lot we can do. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Nitu. I think, you know, just as you said, it is really up to us these days to empower ourselves now. That is not the same as saying seek out information and act on it without your healthcare professional. Correct. But it is about gathering this information and taking it to your healthcare professional just to help. I mean, when you sit down with your family physician, they have a very challenging job to do in about 10 minutes. And so the more that you can peek, hey, I have this constellation of symptoms. I read that it might be polycystic ovarian syndrome. What do you think, doctor? Like that is how we spur these conversations to be in partnership yes. with our healthcare practitioners. In not fact, we have a whole um, section in our book, uh, Desiree, where I teach people how to be prepared for their appointment. You know, all of us have been patients sitting opposite doctors. All the questions go out of your mind. And so writing down all the questions, doesn't matter if you're that annoying patient, sending information ahead of your appointment to your doctor so they know you know, mean business. Uh, you know, having your medical notes, your surgical notes, your history, when was your last period? When what was your cycle length? These things are important because the doctor knows then that they cannot brush you off, you know, because what happens is, you know, when you're very busy, you will end up giving more time to the person who asks more questions. Now, it may not be fair, but life isn't necessarily always fair. You have to look after yourself. So it is so important. And again, always relying on reliable evidence-based resources. So whether it is, you know, the Canadian guidelines, whether it is the international guidelines, whether it is uh, the NHS, the Royal College of Ops and Gynae, up to date, Mayo Clinic, it doesn't matter. But you need to have reliable resources because it's so easy to read a blog or read uh, something and actually get sidetracked that, oh, my God, I should be eating this kind of way for polycystic ovary syndrome when the science hasn't really all confirmed that that is the best way. So it's it's so important to empower yourself and then use that knowledge intelligently so that you can get the attention of your healthcare professional. And if and you know, if it is not their in area of interest, say, is there somebody in the, in the practice who actually knows a bit more about hormonal health? Or actually, you know, you might find that within your insurance providers, they may have specialists who are actually dealing with different conditions because there's no point you talking to somebody who's spends all their time, you know, dealing with, say, orthopedic problems, right, in, in a, the primary care physician. So it's so important that you actually do that little bit of homework because, you know, doctors are busy. They're good people. Uh, the vast majority of them, they just don't often have the time. And so you're much better off, you know, teasing out that information for yourself so that you can get the right management. And, and you know, there is certainly help available. And, and I, I don't want people to ever be dismissed because it often happens, especially for people uh, of color, those who are 
overweight or obese as per medical terms, we know studies after studies have shown that women are dismissed, especially when they are in these minority groups. Uh, It's really uh, easy, you know, come back when you're pregnant. Not everybody, not everything is about getting pregnant. Yes, it's important. But, you know, there's a whole life that one wants to lead well before you want to get pregnant. And so it's not fun living with acne or excess hair uh, or losing your scalp hair or, you know, struggling with weight or anxiety. You don't have to wait till you want to get pregnant until to have a diagnosis. Thank you for that. There are so many things I want to unpack about what you just said. And I want to start with the fact that many people equate the word hormones with reproductive hormones only. And so what is the rule? Because we talked about how you can consider PCOS almost a cousin of type 2 diabetes. So what is the role of estrogen versus insulin in the development of PCOS? So it is an estrogen-dependent condition, definitely. But the, the way we know is that the trigger in about three quarters of people with polycystic ovary syndrome seems to be insulin resistance. Now, insulin is a hormone that is produced by our pancreas, which is a tail-shaped organ that is sort of sitting close to our stomach or behind our stomach, and it releases insulin. Now, insulin is very important because it helps to maintain the glucose of the blood sugar levels in our blood and actually helps to move the insulin into the cells because without glucose, our cells don't have the energy to work. So, and, and so it's so important to understand. Uh, imagine that each body cell, whether it's in the muscle or anywhere in the body, basically has a door to it and has got a key to it. And there is a keyhole. So the keyhole is the receptor. And the key is insulin. So imagine the key to be insulin and the receptor to be the keyhole. And the room is your cell, one individual cell. Now, the job of the insulin is to get into this keyhole, correctly turn it so that it opens the door and glucose molecules can come in after you've eaten your banana and the uh, slice of bread or a potato or rice or whatever you might be eating that has got a carbo- that has got carbohydrates beans and anything so what happens with insulin resistance is that basically this keyhole or the receptor is either slightly misshapen because of genetics the way you're born or you're not producing enough insulin or the keyhole has got blocked by fat. And that fat can come from diet, from animal-based foods or lots of coconut oil and things like that, or excess fat within our body tissue cells. So that's blocking it. So the insulin key can't do its job. And you're going on trying to turn and imagining that this uh, receptor or keyhole is blocked with chewing gum and you just can't turn the lock. So what happens is, so the blood sugar uh, levels start rising in the blood because it's not able to come into the cell. And so there's a lot of messages are being sent, come on, increase the amount of insulin because we need those glucose molecules to come in. And so for some time, it does work by increasing the level of insulin. It somehow manages to push the door open and the glucose molecules come in. But over time, the insulin levels keep rising. As the insulin levels keep rising, the cells get more and more resistant to the action. So it needs more and more insulin to do the same job that it would have done, say, when you didn't have that fat blocking the cell, either from diet or from, uh, you know, from the foods that, uh, or from the from our body fats. Now, insulin also has, as a result of that insulin increasing, what is the relation with PCOS as a result of that? What it does is stimulates the ovaries through insulin-like growth factors and things like that to produce more androgens, more hormones. And as a result, that hormonal imbalance starts occurring because it's stimulating the ovaries when it shouldn't be doing that. It Insulin does stimulate the ovaries to produce some of those hormones, but when it's in excess, there's too much of it being produced. The other thing is when you carry excess weight, each of our body cells is carrying more fat and fat is a source from the cholesterol that our body produces and things. Estrogen gets produced via the same pathway. There is no estrogen without testosterone and no testosterone without progesterone. And all of it comes from a building block called 
called cholesterol, which our bodies make. So the, when there is these excess amounts of estrogen, that is another pathway by which it disrupts the ovulation or the release of the eggs and causes anovulatory cycles or no periods or missed periods or delayed periods. That's why losing weight by dropping those estrogen levels, by dropping those androgen levels helps. So insulin resistance is quite complex. It can also, you know, endocrine disruptors are being thought now to increase the chance of having uh, insulin resistance because of, you know, the amount of things like BPA, for example, and various other chemicals that are found in plastics. And that's why we say try and avoid, you know, cooking your food in plastic, storing your food in plastic, really trying to think about what you're putting on your pad, the pads that you use, the tampons that you use. There are a lot and lot of lot of chemicals in these that can really disrupt hormones as well and including insulin levels as well. So not just your female or reproductive hormones, but also insulin. So you have endocrine disruptors, you have genetics, you have excess body weight. All these can contribute to insulin resistance and then because for a large number of women, including those who are of a healthy body weight, they also may have either genetic tendencies, but also they may carry increased intra-abdominal fat, the fat that you can't see. Uh, and we know that from studies of CT scans and MRI scans. So we know that insulin resistance is the main driver for PCOS. And as a result of the uh, IGF-1 and the various other hormones, it will stimulate the ovaries to produce more androgens as well as Excess weight itself, it's a complex relationship. Excess weight uh, on its own may be causing PCOS, but also PCOS may be contributing to excess weight. So we don't know which one comes first, but we know that all these are very intertwined and can cause a real issue. So I hope I've been able to explain that the main driver for PCOS is insulin resistance, but body weight also plays a role. And for insulin resistance itself, why some people are more prone to it, it may be partly genetic, it may be the endocrine disruptors, it might be the fact that there is excess fat in our diets as well as excess body weight. So you can see how hormones really can be so intertwined with each other. And we know that those who have PCOS also may have higher, increased risk of thyroid dysfunction. And so it's so important to get your thyroid levels checked as, as well as doing some detailed blood work on your cholesterol levels as well as... So all those things I do talk about because it's hard to get your doctors to understand that you know, just because you have acne and you have a diagnosis because the rest of it is not important because it's not a disease of the ovaries. It is an endocrine disorder like type 2 diabetes and actually gets very little attention. As, as I said, three out of four women will never get a diagnosis. And it is particularly increased incidence, we know, in those who are trying to get pregnant, those who are uh, carrying excess weight, and in minority subgroups. So, you know, as many as one in four uh, South Asian women may have polycystic ovary syndrome. It's increased risk in uh, African-American women. It's increased risk in indigenous Australians, in uh, Hispanics. So we do know, while Japanese and Chinese women tend to have the lowest risk. So it's important to know that there's a big distance distribution as well. And when you stigmatize these conditions, women then stay at home and actually then uh, fall prey to misinformation and end up, you know, doing really not getting the, the best health uh, advice that they deserve. And, you know, you mentioned that because I wanted, this is the perfect time to sort of shift to talking about nutrition. And, you know, you mentioned that there is a genetic connection for PCOS or PCOS, but also that lifestyle and environment plays a big part of your risk. So what is the role of nutrition in PCOS? What makes me really happy is that Every expert guideline now confirms that lifestyle changes, including diet and exercise and behavioral changes. So there's no point just going on a diet. Uh, that's why I don't like the word diet, really. It's a way of eating, a sustainable way of eating. And so international guidelines have confirmed that lifestyle modifications and behavioral changes are to be used before you do anything else. 
However, at the same time, as I said, you might need, if you are somebody struggling to conceive, you may need to go for assisted conception. You may have to have medications for helping you to ovulate. If you're somebody who's having acne or excess hair, then the uh, hormonal birth control pill is amazing and is a first line of treatment rather than being scared of it because it actually makes a big difference. And there are certain things that one has to do, making sure that you have your multivitamins and multiminerals and, and things like that. We know that man, man, maintaining your vitamin D levels because vitamin D is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. And so it has a big role to play in PCOS. But what is really good to see is the international guidelines all coming together and saying that lifestyle matters. But so interesting, Desiree, that in the panels where you have patient advocates sitting on the panel, they said that's all very well. But you're not telling us what lifestyle changes. How do we bring those dietary changes? And so the international guidelines basically said, uh, we cannot say there's one diet that really works. But we do know that there is a diet that is confirmed to work in type 2 diabetes. But also studies, a lot of studies in PCOS have shown that those who tend to eat diets that are low in inflammation, so an anti-inflammatory diet, so things that reduce the amount of advanced glycation end products, which are found in barbecued foods and, you know, fried foods and cereals and, you know, fried chicken and things like that, really damage not just our arterial blood vessels, but also our ovaries, because there are specific receptors that are increased in uh, on these ovaries in PCOS and really suck up these advanced glycation end products. They age the tissues, they age your ovaries. That's how you remember them. So what we do know is there are diets that work. And I know that from my own personal uh, experience with hundreds and hundreds of patients, but what we all agree, all health professions will agree that eating a diet that is uh, anti-inflammatory in nature. And so you want to be eating in the way, the reason I recommend trying to flood your diet with plants, whole plant foods, tends to be the best way of helping you to lose weight because they're calorie light, nutrition, uh, nutrient dense. Uh, so focusing on a diet that is very rich, in fruits and vegetables, then fruits are not going to mess up your uh, blood sugar. They're going to be absolutely fine. It comes wrapped with fiber. So you want to eat a fiber-rich diet. So a lot of beans, green peas, lentils, soya, tofu, tempeh. These are all very healthy, healthful foods. You want to have things like potatoes that have been twice cooked in their skin, not fried, because these are low in calorie, very good in nutrition. Lots of fruits, green leafy vegetables, rainbow colored vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices, all these things can help you. Uh, whole grains, you know, brown rice, mushrooms, we know that these are all low in advanced glycation end products. They're rich in nutrients. So they help with all the inositol type of whole grain vitamins uh, that are there in these whole plant foods. So you want to really be eating this predominantly. You know, you have the occasional piece of chicken or you have the occasional donut. We're not talking about those. We're talking about what does your day-to-day -day diet look like and the closer you can eat to whole plant foods, we know helps to normalize blood sugars, improve insulin resistance, help with weight loss, as well as improve symptoms of acne and, uh, you know, excess hair and things. Yes, at the same time, you may need help with medication, either alongside or afterwards, however you choose, but lifestyle has to go hand in hand. So nutrition is really important and herbs and spices carry a lot of big bang for their buck. You, know, you understand? So even having small amounts can really give you a lot of healthful benefits, not in the form of tablets, but really the real deal, you know, turmeric powder, making sure you get it from a good quality source, ginger root, turmeric root, you know, all this cinnamon is great for uh, controlling your blood sugar levels. These are important things to understand. But exercise is also important. And by exercise, I mean a combination of physical movement. So you're actually, you know, getting your steps in, you're walking in nature, you're really enjoying that sort of aspect as well, but also doing some strength training. High intensity exercise, unless you're used to it, may not be the best for PCOS because it increases cortisol levels. But strength training is good for all ages and all stages. So it's so important that you actually do resistance training so your tissues get more sensitive to insulin. 
also eating in the circadian rhythm, trying to eat, you know, in the early hours of the day, by seven o'clock in the evening, having your main meal at breakfast or at lunch really helps to normalize insulin levels. And then going for a little walk or doing some sort of exercise within half an hour of starting your meal is really helpful to normalize your blood sugars. Exercise also helps, even cardio exercise, all of this will help to sensitize your tissues to that insulin. Remember that insulin that couldn't get in because of the keyhole being blocked with fat. You can see how when you do these things, it actually improves the sensitivity. Again, sleep is really important because during when you don't sleep, the cortisol levels tend to rise. And so all your hormones tend to get uh, imbalanced. So sleep is really important because when you don't sleep well, you tend to reach for the wrong foods. When you reach for the, not wrong foods, foods that don't bring you uh, nourishment, you then tend to feel bad about yourself. Then you don't want to exercise. You don't want to go for a walk. You don't want to talk to your friends. You have a poor body image. And then you reach for alcohol or a cigarette. And so all the six lifestyle pillars come tumbling down. So, you know, looking after your stress levels, your sleep, your exercise, changing your mindset, eating mostly plants, avoiding alcohol, you know, really trying to keep away from alcohol because it is an inflammatory product, you know, having a community and a sense of purpose, it really will help having a good laugh with your friends, finding a couple of people that you can confide in. So it really makes life less lonely and much more acceptable because it can be hard, you know, psychosexual dysfunction can be a real issue in those with PCOS as well. So I hope that people realize that, you know, even if you need the uh, contraceptive pill for acne and excess hair, which is a great way, and especially if you need contraception or if you need fertility treatment or if you need supplementation, it doesn't matter what you need. Lifestyle is key and changing your mindset. Why do you want to do this rather than, oh, that's because Dr. Bajikal told me to do it or Desiree told me to do it. No, it's because you want to live the best life that you deserve. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think it's so important that we highlight, as you talked about an anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, you talked about eating whole plant foods. Because what I'm seeing pop up online is a lot of practitioners advising eating animal protein and reducing carbohydrates for hormonal or blood sugar conditions. So how do you respond to that? So I respond to that by saying that I need to see the science. Yes, of course, if you eat animal-based products. So say when you have an omelet or a piece of chicken, what happens is there is no carbohydrates in it. So you're lulled into this false sense of security uh, that your blood sugars are normal because what is happening is all these products contain high amounts of saturated fat. And remember what I said about the fat, the fat that goes and blocks that keyhole. So what happens is if I did a blood test for you and you're eating an omelet for lunch, for breakfast, you're then having uh, a few greens, but you're having a couple of chicken breasts, then you're having fish at night. What's happening is you're hardly having any carbohydrates, so the insulin is not getting to work at all. So when you do a blood test, your blood sugar levels are normal and think, wow, this is fantastic. And yes, it can work for a short period of time, definitely. You know, if you want to lose weight on a keto diet or a paleo diet, of course those things. But that is not a helpful, long-term, sustainable way. You need to find a joyful way of eating. So, you know, you want to start off your day with a, a big breakfast of, you know, porridge oats, which is known repeatedly. It has got beta-glucans and in a soluble fiber. It, we know that long-living societies eat porridge regularly. So you want to have a bowl of porridge with a cup of soy milk that is fortified. You want to have some walnuts, some berries, a banana, some peanut butter, depending upon, you know, your taste, maybe a chopped up date, flaxseed powder to have the lignans and the omega-3s. So you want to do that. You then want to have lunch, which would be, say, brown rice with a mushroom curry, for example, or a chickpea curry, which will give you all that antioxidants as well as low AGE products. You would want to start each meal with a big salad. Evening, you might have a nice soup or a large, colorful salad with beetroot and kale and uh, rocket, uh, arugula and, you know, 
radish and every single color that you can think along with some fermented foods and some tofu on the side you know so you want to be eating foods that really bring you joy you're full you may have a baked potato sweet potatoes these are all great foods so that you can actually have a sustained level of blood sugar and over time the insulin levels start normalizing and you know you have no sense of deprivation you're eating really fantastic food Salt, oil, and sugar should not be demonized, but they are not health foods. So you want to keep them for flavorings. There's nothing wrong with extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil or walnut oil. That's all great. But I would much rather you ate your avocados and nuts and seeds and tofu and things for your good sources of fats, whole sources of fats, rather than you know, having it from highly refined sources. But yes, you can, of course, you know, uh, extra virgin olive oil has been shown to help in in the part of a, a variety or a very diverse diet but i want people to be eating a diverse number of of plants you know we know that the american gut health project showed that eating at least 30 different plant foods in a week helps your gut microbiome and the gut microbiome is not the only thing that's there there's something called the estrobolome which is also specific bacteria that actually synthesize uh, the estrogen and chuck out all the excess estrogen, reducing our risks of breast cancer, endometriosis, fibroids, polycystic ovary syndrome. So it's so important to understand that you want to nurture those uh, probiotic bacteria that are healthy with the good prebiotics. So when you understand this, then it starts making sense. And then it's you want to eat that piece of chicken or the donut, then eat it like a treat rather than thinking that is bringing health to you. You don't have to go 100% plant-based. And there is also a place for eating some of the uh, burgers or the uh, vegan sausages and things like that. And a treat or, you know, if you are somebody who needs to put on weight or if you're elderly, you know, those are definitely, as I'm sure you would agree as a dietitian as well, definitely are good sources of protein and, and calories for those, for children and people. And especially if you go for a barbecue, you don't want to be standing there eating an apple. Uh, you you definitely want to eat some of these foods, but they shouldn't be daily occurrences for the vast, especially with people with PCOS, because you're trying to reduce the inflammation in your body. And so through exercise, through sleep, through managing stress, by avoiding uh, smoking and tobacco smoking and alcohol, by uh, eating plant-based foods, by having a rich community with a sense of purpose. All these things will help to reduce the inflammation in your life and bring the joy in. Well, and I so appreciate your very measured, very balanced approach to lifestyle, Dr. Nitu, because I find that we are so prone to very extreme thinking yeah. when it comes to nutrition. We vastly overlook the transformative nature of quiet consistency in our diet while saying we can never have an ice cream. No, you just don't have them every day. Correct. Of course, you can have one every once in a while. And, you know, that being said, you've mentioned soy a couple of times, and I feel like we can't talk about this topic without talking about soy because every single week I am asked, but isn't soy estrogen? Isn't that quote unquote, bad for my hormones. What does the science tell us? I really feel sorry. I don't have any shares in, in the soy uh, industry, but the soybean is a bean. Okay, it's a legume, just like chickpeas and just like kidney beans and things like that. And what the soybean is so... It, was discovered about three between three and five thousand years ago. The medical, uh, the biological name is glycine max. It was found in China. It was grown in China. It's still huge part of everybody's diet in Southeast Asian countries. We don't really struggle either with fertility or with weight issues until recently with the introduction of the standard Western diet. But the soybean is a bean. Okay, so that's important to understand. But it's got some special qualities. So it's like the jack and the beanstalk, you know, those beans. So what it does is soy basically is has got all plants have uh, essential amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein that we cannot do without. So that's why they're known as essential amino acids. But what, what soy and quinoa, for example, 
uh, quinoa is a seed, but soy is particularly good compared to other sources is that all the nine essential amino acids are arranged like in the sort of uh, sacred egg white that people in the uh, gym industry and all love. So it's actually got all the right proportions without any of the nasties of animal uh, derived products. So it's got the right amount of protein. It's got it's a rich source of fiber. It's a good source of iron. It's got a lot of other micronutrients. But what it also has, like chickpeas and flaxseed and blueberries and and other fruit and pistachios, is it's got phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are plant estrogens. So plant estrogens can be divided into isoflavones and lignans, but there are lots of other subgroups. But isoflavones are one type of plant estrogens and soy happens to be one of those isoflavones. Now, what the plant estrogens do is they preferentially block something called the beta receptor estrogen receptor. There are two types of receptors, the keyholes that I was talking to you about, the alpha receptors and the beta receptors. So for example, there are more beta receptors in the bone and there are more alpha receptors on the, on the breast. And so what these plant estrogens do is they preferentially block the beta receptors, so they improve bone health. So we know those who eat edamame beans and tofu and tempeh, studies have shown, there was a very nice study by Satyapalan, uh, Professor Satyapalan in Hull, where they showed that actually bone density improves and osteoporosis risk reduces with the eating of soy. And especially we know there have been a lot of studies to suggest that vegans are more prone to fractures and things. And that's because of poor studies again done before. So we want to be including foods like this rather than demonizing plant estrogens. And estrogen, plant estrogens don't behave like the estrogen, mammalian estrogen. Estrogen that is produced by that body fat that I was telling you about, which increases our risk of breast cancer and prostate cancer and endometriosis and fibroids. Plant estrogens actually will block these uh, beta receptors and not affect the alpha receptors. So they only go in and block those alpha receptors when there's too much of mammalian estrogen. So they reduce our risk of breast cancer, prostate cancer, liver cancer, ovarian cancer, bowel cancer. They also help to reduce hot flushes. They also help in polycystic ovary syndrome by improving all the hormonal markers, by reducing body weight, improving waist size, helping with uh, heart disease and cholesterol level lowering. It also doesn't affect fertility at all, neither in males or in females. In fact, it probably improves it, but you know that, those studies haven't been done. But there is certainly no worry for any man or woman to not eat between two to four portions of soy every single day, depending upon your activity. So a handful of soy is a handful of tofu or a handful of tempeh or a handful of uh, edamame beans, and you would get your 50, 55 milligrams of isoflavones. For children, we would say we know that children who start eating soy at a young age or a young adult have the lower risk of breast and prostate cancer, most likely. And we would say a portion uh, of soy, like a handful of tofu or a cup of soy milk, uh, a few edamame beans would be fine. Because you don't want to eat 20, 30 portions of soy only because you want to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. So you can eat 20 fruits and have the lowest risk of diabetes. But if you eat 20 fruits a day, you're not going to have place for the greens and the big potatoes and the, you know, the tofu and all that. So I really want people to understand that you're trying to eat a diverse diet uh, so that you're actually getting different foods and foods that you really look forward to and so that you can actually enjoy rather than worrying about what is the calorie content, what is the macro content. That is not what I want people to do. And we have lots of recipes in our books, which Rohini, my daughter, who's a nutritionist, has written at the end. But there's lots of information on my website and on her website, all of which is free for those who don't want to buy the book. So hopefully you'll share my website at the end. But there are about 50 different fact sheets on various conditions that I hope will really make a difference, including a whole fact sheet on the role of soy. And, you know, there we have it straight from the physician, not just the physician, the OBGYN, the person for whom reproductive hormones is the thing. Soy is beneficial. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, (laughs) but I want people to go out and buy your wonderful book. So I think now's the time to switch to the rapid fire questions. So I always close with Five little softball questions Ooh, for my guests okay. so we can get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> the first is, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you always know you wanted to be a physician or was it something else? I wanted to be an athlete. 
I only became a doctor because my sister and brother were doctors. And in India, I'm 60 years, 61 years of age now. And so, you know, when I was uh, growing up, uh, if you were good in studies, you either became a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so because my sister and brother were doctors, I became a doctor. And boy, am I grateful because it's the world's best profession for me perfectly suited. And Obsangaini was exactly everything that the doctor ordered for me. Still find it just as thrilling, 35, 37 years since I started becoming an OBGYN. I just love every single minute of it. So there's nothing that I would change. Well, we're very grateful to your brother and sister as well that you did. (laughs) So the next question is, what is your favorite way to unwind? My favorite way is to watch a box set sometimes on television uh, with my husband. I love that. And But really speaking to unwind, I have to say there are two things that I over even listen, uh, watching a box set is one is walking my dogs every day, whatever the weather. We have two rescue dogs and I just love my uh, one and a half, two hour walk, whatever my schedule for the day is. I'll find time generally to do that. And Playing golf is another one, which is my happy place. And cooking and eating delicious food. I'm a foodie. I go to sleep thinking about food. I wake up thinking about food. I love my food. You and me both. Okay, (laughs) then. What is a favorite family meal that you consume all the time? Oh, loads of them. But my husband makes this delicious cashew cream-based pasta, which uh, a legume pasta, which I just love with a huge salad. Beetroot is one of my favorite and avocados. So I love that. I love uh, my South Indian roots. I make a mean, uh, beautiful, um, you know, coconut-based curry that I make, which is very, very delicious. Don't make it that often, but I do love that. And I have loads of recipes on my own website uh, that are, you know, very much in touch with my roots. So I would have a proper Indian meal with dal and this other coconut dish that I had lots of beans and, uh, you know, brown rice and soy yogurt, raita and things like that. So, yes. And of course, if I was, um, it was going to be my last meal, I probably would have a big vegan pizza Uh, you know, I finished off with a vegan sticky toffee pudding because I do have a sweet tooth. I do love that. And usually my dessert every day would be a big pot of soy yogurt with uh, a couple of chopped dates and some cashew nuts in it. And I just love that. And maybe sometimes a, a couple of pieces of dark chocolate. But yes, if I was going to really go all out, that would be my meal. You know, one of my biggest points of envy across the pond is that you have wonderful soy yogurt, which is all but non-existent here in North America. I heard. My daughter's in New York and she's always crying. (laughs) I was, you know, right before the pandemic, I was in Portugal and there was just this incredible soy. It was so delicious. It's amazing. So much better. No sugars. There's Greek variety. Oh my God. It's just fabulous. I know. Food manufacturers, if you're listening, get on it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, since you love a box set, what's the best box set you've watched in a while? We are currently watching The Good Wife. I know we're 10 years out, but watching that now. And then, of course, uh, recently I watched The White Lotus, which was fantastic. Never having really watched television for years and years. I think the pandemic made us start watching, you know, some of uh, (laughs) that. And just recently we just started watching The Good Wife and we've got a little bit hooked, which is not very good because, um, you know, it does interfere with work sometimes. But (laughs) at least I only watch it when my... So Rajiv and I, we both watch it together. So there, there is an understanding that we can only watch one episode or two sometimes. <laughs> you know. that, that is the only challenge with getting onto a TV show versus a film, because yeah. if there are multiple seasons, you're like, oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm here for a while. Yeah, Breaking Bad was another one, which I just loved. You know, so absolutely. <laughs> okay, last one before I let you go. One small habit that everyone can adopt today to make a change in their health? 
I would say always start with wherever you are at. Just because the Canadian guidelines tell you that 10 portions of fruits and vegetables is what you need to eat, don't start there because that is a recipe for failure. So I always say if you're somebody who doesn't eat any fruit, maybe find a fruit that you like. Do you like satsumas? Eat one every day. And then the following week you think, oh, I actually like grapes. So maybe add a bunch of grapes to it. And if you like cucumbers, the next time you add some cucumbers and then carrots and slowly build it up. And before you know it, you'll be eating 10 portions of fruits and veg, which is a large salad and a soup, basically. So, you know, and and a few fruits. So it's really starting where you're at, whether it's with exercise, whether it's with sleep, because for me, all my pillars are great, except my sleep. I always used to think I would sleep when I was dead. I'd manage with four hours of sleep most of my life because of, you know, young children, dogs to be walked and my obstetric career which was so busy. I was on call every third or fourth day, hardly ever slept at night. I also became menopausal at the age of 38. So sleep was always disturbed. And it was a time when there was a lot of misinformation about hormone replacement. So I would always say start small. So now I start going to bed a bit earlier. And, you know, I can see so many differences in my own health by actually making small changes. And it, it is those small changes that accumulate over time always that greatly transform your life correct absolutely dr nitu thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the all sorts podcast i know that our community is learning so much from you and i hope they all pick up your wonderful book anyone with a set of ovaries will learn so much about how their body works and how to read their fifth vital sign absolutely I feel like this is one of those episodes so jam-packed with information that you are going to have to listen a second time. Or better yet, pick up Dr. Nitu's wonderful and informative book, Living Picose-Free. It is always such a thrill to talk with a physician so supportive of lifestyle medicine, but also one who is aware of the stark inequality and stigma faced by those in larger bodies, women of color, trans men, and non-binary folk. All of us deserve quality, compassionate care, and armed with the information we receive from incredible practitioners such as Dr. Nitu, we are better empowered to seek the care we deserve. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next time, friends, be well.